Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Every uh, so often, I pop a button. That last bit of sausage roll or lolly cake was just one bit too many. And this small piece of plastic goes flying through space. Those of you who have had lunch with me will know what I'm talking about because you've got the little dents to prove it. Now, if I'm able to rescue said little piece of plastic, my next very tricky task is to sew it back on. Having undertaken this operation now a number of times, I've learnt that while Steph can do this with one thread, me with rugby player hands takes about three to secure it properly. The button will stay on if there's a, a gathering of threads to support it. And I think often the same is true of the scriptures. So today I'm going to do a wee dance, metaphorical dance, you'll be pleased to know, through the New Testament Baptist Church, we don't do dancing, um, picking up various threads on one subject, and that subject is the future glory of humanity. Well, the scene is the night before Jesus died. They've had the Last Supper, they've posed for the painting, and things are starting to move on. John records Jesus delivering this sort of final summation of what he was about, his hopes for his friends, he shares his heart. It's the final time. And I want to read to you from John 17, which records that. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. So, Glory or being glorified is sort of like being raised up to a high place, a high place of honour. I guess when um, we finally get King Charles III, he'll be sitting up on a grand throne above everyone and he'll have jewellery and everyone will kiss his ring and all the rest of it. It's it's a place of honour, it's a place of glory that he'll occupy. And here Jesus was asking his father, to restore him to that exalted place that he had previously had in heaven as the eternal son of God through whom everything had been created, the, the son of God who Colossians 1 tells us sustains the universe. At this point in the story, he still had to go to the cross, that revolting death, but, but he was focused on what was going to come afterwards. He said, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. In other words, his disciples, his followers. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those who you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So somehow in following Jesus, this little ragtag bunch of no names from Galilee had glorified Jesus, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that we may be one, they may be one, as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them. Not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself so that they also might be sanctified in truth. Sanctified meaning being sort of set apart for the purposes of God. They were to be, we were to be, God's people in a hostile world. But not saved from suffering, the stuff of humanity, losing people, disease, going through the difficulties of life. That's still part of it. He didn't pray for that to stop. I asked not only on behalf of these but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We are the people who believe in Jesus because of the initial work of those disciples, those followers, all that have come afterwards. This is the one place in Scripture where we are prayed for. And what does he pray? That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. There's this loving unity of Father, Son, and all of us. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. 
and these know that you have sent me. I've made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So in the sweep of a story of Jesus who came to save a people from the world to himself, from this broken and sin-battered world, verse 22 here suggests that we who follow him are glorified. There's a place of honour for you and for me. But not, it seems, as individuals. Because if you look at these verses which I've highlighted here, verses 22 and 23, it's about us as a people. Not as individuals, but a, a, a people who are all in Christ. Jesus had given his followers, his disciples, the glory that the Father had given him. They were like the first citizens of the, um, God's kingdom. The, the people who showed up on the first four ships here in Christchurch. Have you heard the story about um, the first, what was the first ship that came in? Cressy, thank you. The people from Cressy were trotting up the bridal track and then the um, something rather grey, was it the Charlotte Grey, was just coming over the, the, the hill, they could see it, and one nudged the other and said, look, new people. There seemed to be a sense in these verses that we have somehow already been lifted up and glorified. But if I think about myself and I think about the church that I've experienced, maybe it's one of those you can't quite see it yet. Because I don't bet you, but I don't feel very that way. The phrase, in Christ, is the most commonly way that followers of Jesus are described in the New Testament. Uh, according to Mr. Google, who assists me in writing all of my sermons, he's a fine chap, the phrase in Christ occurs perhaps 164 times in Paul's letters. That's quite a few. 164. A common way that the community of believers is described in these letters is as the body of Christ. And we tend to think of that as sort of this metaphor, this word picture of how we are as a faith movement or community. And the classic passage on this is 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about the variety of spiritual gifts and roles that we all have while all being part of the body of Christ. You know, you know can foot do without eye? Can ear just be a body, would be a giant ear, all that kind of stuff. But listen to these bits from the chapter. For just as the body is one and has many members, you know, eye, foot, toe, all that, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptised into the one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Then later, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul doesn't say it's like we were, we are one body of Christ. It's that we are one body of Christ. It's presented as a statement of spiritual reality. My head, my foot, my eye have different roles or functions, but they're all part of me. They're not separated. Love this flick. 
I wince when I hear Christians talking about their individual rights. I just don't get it. I think that in becoming Christian, we become some, part of something much bigger than ourselves. And to that extent at least, we are not wholly our own anymore. Now a couple of chapters later, I told you this was a dance through the scriptures. There's 1 Corinthians 15, which has some other relevant threads. Now, the backstory of that passage is that there was a lot of confusion in the Corinthian church about resurrection. Um, would they be physically resurrected after they died? Was it some sort of spiritual resurrection, whatever that might be, or was it just not a thing at all? So Paul wrote them this. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved. It's that continuous salvation thing. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, if you persevere, unless you've come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. It's a very simple very clear gospel with resurrection in its core. It's cross and resurrection. He goes on, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith is in vain. Jesus' literal death and resurrection are the, the pivot points, the, the, I didn't do much physics, but the fulcrum, I think is the right word, that our faith lives or dies on. Without either of them being true, it's just nonsense. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human. For as we all die in Adam, so we will all be made alive in Christ. We too will be raised. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, second coming, those who belong to him. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death when all things are subjected to him then the son himself will also be subjected, subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all so there's an end point history that I started I think in April in Genesis is marching towards that one end point here's a vision of our future Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the first bit of the harvest, the first grapes that are, are brought down from a vineyard to make the first wine are quite sweet because they haven't been there that long. The early harvest. And the full resurrection harvest comes later. In an industrial age, we'll, we would say that Jesus is the prototype and from that prototype, there will be all these other cars, 
microwave ovens, whatever. In the information age, I suppose Jesus is the initial app. Perhaps. Then everything comes afterwards. He was raised from the dead. And so too will we be. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come in? Fool. Like that. Fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other sort of grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one thing and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, it's, it's mortal, it will die. But what is raised is imperishable, immortal. It is sown in dishonour, in, in, in our sinful state. It is raised in glory, being perfected. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, that's Adam. The second man is from heaven, that's Jesus. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Our sin will be a thing of the past. We will be matured. We will be like the beans that Pete doesn't like very much to have that Margaret used to grow for him. We will be raised to life when Jesus returns to wrap up all of this, to wrap up history. We will not be raised as we are now. I will not pop any more buttons. But rather, we will be raised to glory. And for a glimpse of what that might look like, go and have a look at the, um, the accounts of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. We will bear the image of the man of heaven, the bear the image of Jesus. In other words, the lifelong process by God, of God by his spirit remaking us will be completed. You will meet my best self and I your best self. So anyway, that's a long dance. You've stuck with me well. But here are the threads. We, the people of God, are literally the body of Christ. I don't think it's just a picture. We are all united in Christ. And because Jesus is united with the Spirit and the Father, we are in that sort of loving community that is God. Jesus' resurrection is a model for ours. We will all be resurrected at the ultimate harvest. And then finally, we will be raised in glory, bearing Jesus' image.
Christian hope is actually quite specific. It's that one shining fine day we will stand with our glorified Lord Jesus in glory ourselves. Mature and whole. But with the growth that we've experienced, this side of the grave still a part of who we are. I think it's really significant that if you read John 20 and you've got Jesus and, and doubting Thomas and he says to Thomas, who says, look, I, I want to see where they stuck the nails in you. And Jesus says, here, here, put your finger there. He's the resurrected Jesus, but he's still got his scars. But he's perfected. The challenges that you have come through in this life will go with you forever. No tough time that you've come through is ultimately wasted. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And we will have finally found ultimate unity as a people. This is the Christian hope. Hold on to it. In season and out. Thank you for your kind attentions.